you'll join me in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 this morning, we are looking at verses 9 through 11. If you would join me in the blue ESV Bible, that is on page 980, 980 if you're using the blue Bibles. The title of our sermon this morning is Gospel Priorities, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are love, discernment, and excellent. Now, one of the things that sets a great leader apart from a good leader is their ability to discern what's needed in specific moments when others aren't entirely sure. Sometimes that means making decisions that aren't always understood by others at first. It means taking risks. It means that we're not going to, uh, we're going to know that we're not always able to make everybody happy. But it is something that is inherent in a great leader. It can't be taught. It can't be learned from a book. It only comes with a combination of a, of a gift from God and the experience of time and patience. Sometimes leaders have to do things or make decisions they, they know are right, but they may not be able to explain exactly why they're right. They just know that they are. Other times, the only explanation they can give to people is, please just trust me. There's stories about Steve Jobs, the famed founder of Apple. When the iPhone was first being developed, they would bring him uh, the prototypes and he would sit at his desk with his eyes closed and he would turn the thing over in his hand and he would feel the screen, he would feel the buttons, he would feel every, age, uh, every edge of that thing. And as he was doing it, he was, he was talking to those who were standing around, taking notes of everything he said, that he would, that he would be making changes just through his ability to feel and know what needed to be done differently. And we know what was done differently was certainly uh, paying off for them. In the end, iPhone sales around the world today speak pretty highly of his overall process. You see, you see the same sort of things uh, with athletes. What sets a great athlete apart from a good athlete? It, it's something that can be seen uh, from a very young age on a lot of kids' teams. There's always that one kid, when they get the ball, no matter where they are, no matter who they're up against, they're going to get things done. They're going to get through. They're going to score the goal. They're going to score the touchdown. They're going to make the basket. They have an ability to anticipate they have the ability to intuit what's going to happen. They know where to be on the field or on the court at the right time to be ready and when to follow up and how to do that. In, in times, those are the ones who, who might become professional athletes, the one who develop this even more through practice, always seeking to get better, always making improvements. But again, the biggest factor is going to be time and patience. It really can't be taught. It's not something you can learn in five minutes by watching a YouTube video. It takes time. And likewise, there are certain things in the Christian life that just take time. We don't all become mature, insightful Christians overnight. We need time to learn. We need time to understand. We certainly need time to apply we need time for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to, to chip away at remaining hardness, to smooth out the rough edges once the chipping is done. But, but one of the main things we need time for is to understand what we need and, and what, to, what to pray for. 
What, what are the gospel priorities that I need in my life? What, what do I need to do as a Christian? What do I need to be praying for as a Christian that God would put into my life that as it's worked out, I am able to live more faithfully? I'm able to live more consistently. Think about that for yourself. Do you have the spiritual intuition? Do you have the insight to know what to pray for that you might be more faithful and more godly, that you might be a more Christ-like disciple? Well, in large part, it depends on how long you've been a Christian. And it depends on whether or not as a Christian, if you've really strived for greater sanctification. But it just takes time. It takes time to know what we don't know. It takes time to know what we need. things are is to pay attention to the prayers in the Bible and use those prayers for ourselves. We began our new series last week working through this book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And and we looked at his greeting and the beginning of his prayer for the church that he loved so dearly. And this morning we're going to look at what else Paul was praying for them. And I hope we gain some spiritual intuition here. A sense of what to pray for and, and how to pray for it. Why we would pray for it. How to pray for others. How, how, to, how to think about other ways and things to pray for. So let's look at Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And it is my prayer that our love may abound all the more as we do so. Let's pray, or excuse me, let's read Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. Beginning in verse 9. And it is my prayer... That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Three short verses this morning. We're going to look at the three main things that Paul is praying for for the Philippians. And in turn, that for us to grow as Christians, hopefully uh, to gain greater spiritual intuition, we can be praying for ourselves and for one another. What are the gospel priorities that we need to be praying for? First, though, it's helpful for us to be reminded of what prayer is and what prayer is not. When we are praying, what are we actually doing? Maybe we need to compare that to sometimes what we think we're doing. What is prayer actually accomplishing? Let's consider the words of Matthew Henry. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think he says it well enough that it's worth it. So hang in there with me. Here's what Matthew Henry has to say about prayer. He says, We must not think in our prayers to prescribe to him or by our opportunity to move him. He knows us better than we know ourselves and knows what we will do. But thus we open our wants and our desires and then refer ourselves to his wisdom and goodness. And hereby we give honor to him as our protector and benefactor and take the way which he himself has appointed of fetching in mercy from him and by faith plead his promise with him 
And if we are sincere herein, we are, though, uh, through his grace, qualified according to the tenor of his new covenant to receive his favors and are to be assured that we do and shall receive them. Now, I appreciate the balance he strikes here. Here's what Henry uh, is saying. We're not setting out in prayer to change the mind or the will of God, but to simply make known to him, as Matthew Henry says, our wants and our desires. While simultaneously settling in our hearts that it is God's will, it is God's ultimate desire to see, uh, that we want to see fulfilled in our lives and not our own. And so we tell him what we desire, but we do so wanting and desiring what is best, and we know that he knows what is best. I'm reminded of the prayer of Jesus. Remember, in in Luke chapter 22, Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, and what did he do? He made known to the Father his want and his desires, and he said, without sin, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In his agony of knowing what laid ahead in his, in his crucifixion, he said, Father, if there is any other way, take this. And yet Jesus also said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that there was no other way. And yet he desired, he had a true human desire to be spared from the inevitable. And so it's entirely appropriate that when we pray, we express to God our desires, things that we pray for, things like God working in the lives and and the bodies of those who are sick and suffering, that they would be healed, or that the lost would be saved, naming specific people and circumstances. That's a good and appropriate thing that we do as believers. However, we we need to to put our prayers in their proper context and understand what's going on while we're doing that. Prayer is about a Christian's communion with God. It's about our union with Christ. Lord, here's what I desire. Lord, here's what I see in your word. I I don't see that I'm I'm wrong in asking in, in what I'm asking. It's not opposed to your word or your nature or your character. But Lord, I want your will to be done because your will is greater than mine. You know the end from the beginning. You know how all of these things work together to bring about your purposes. So God, help me to see your will at work in these circumstances. But oh God, I pray. I pray with my desires. I pray with my hopes. I pray knowing that you hear me and that you answer me and that you will be merciful to me, your child. And whatever the outcome, that you will help me to trust you all the more, that you will humble me, that I might submit to you and your will, that you be glorified in my life. Do we pray like that? Now, that being said, it's, it's important that our prayers not be overly consumed with our lists of concerns for ourselves and for others. We need to pray for those things, but we also, we also need to be praying for Christ's likeness, for the body of Christ. Again, remember, we're, we're communing with God in our prayers expressing our heartfelt wants and desires. So what does that look like when we're striving to be all the more conformed into the likeness of our Savior? Let's look at the three ways that Paul can help direct our prayers this morning. The first way we see in verse 9, Paul shows us to pray for abounding love. Read that again. And it is my prayer 
that your love may abound more and more. Now, it's not infrequent in our day to hear people talk about the importance of love. The Beatles sung the anthem in their day that's been carried into ours. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love, love is all you need. All you need is love. All you need is love. It repeats over and over and over. But something mysteriously missing from all of that. What is this love that we so desperately need? Oftentimes, I want to quote those immortal words of Inigo Montoya. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. The Bible actually works out for us in, in various places what love is, but there's, there's an interesting thing here that's, that's not typical of what we read throughout the scriptures about love, and, and it's easy to miss here. But notice Paul says his prayer is for love to abound more and more. But what's missing? What's missing here is an object of that love. Paul doesn't say that your love for God may abound more and more. He doesn't say that your love for the church may abound more and more. No, Paul's prayer for them was simply that their love would be abounding more and more. So is he using the world's definition of love in this instance? Is this the love, love, love that we all need that we just can't get enough of? That there's far too little of? Well, what that is talking about is simply an emotional expression. An outright acceptance of anything and everything a person does without question. That's the world's definition of love. Is that what Paul is talking about? Well, we need to understand what Paul is saying in the way that Paul would have intended it here. And we know from everything that Paul has written that we need to be consistent with the rest of what we see in Scripture. That being said, Paul is particularly tied to what, much of what we understand uh, from the Old Testament and Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament. So how does the Bible, and specifically what, what Jesus has taught us about what we have in the Bible in the Old Testament, talk about what it means to love? Well, biblical love is described in two specific ways. And everything else we talk about that can be called love really falls into one of these two categories. It's very simple. All of you already know it. And if you can't think of it, once I say it, you'll smack yourself in the head and say, oh yeah, it's okay. I'll keep it slow for you. How does Jesus do this? How does Jesus define love? And subsequently, how is Paul doing this here? True biblical love is first the first table of the law, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. That's one category. The second category is the second table of the law, this, the last six commandments. And so Jesus summarized these two categories, didn't he? He called the first and greatest commandment and the second being like it. He said the first is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, and all of our soul. And the second is like it, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. What was Jesus doing there? He was summarizing the entirety of the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And so what Paul is praying here is that love would abound more and more. And, and he's talking about a love that we would have first and foremost vertically, a love 
love that we have for God. So he's praying that our love for God would increase more and more and more and that we would have a greater understanding, a greater greater grasp of his love for us. That's, That's what it takes. I can love God more. And as I love God more, I understand the depths of his love for me. And I will never plumb the depths of his love for me. And the more I learn and know about God, the more I learn and understand about myself and who I am, the more I understand what it took for God to love me the way that he does. And so that love continues to abound. And so I'm turning to God's word and I'm reading and I'm learning and I'm applying the scriptures and I'm getting a better sense of how much he really does love me. And so my love for him increases. And and Paul is, is praying that that love is rising up and rising up and rising up. And I get this image of this volcano or this this geyser, and it's rising up, and eventually it explodes. And when it explodes, it, it flows out, and it overflows horizontally into the second way of love, that we might love our neighbors differently, that we might love them as ourselves. We have thoughts like, well, you know, I know something about myself that I, I don't like, and God knows that much more than I do, and yet he loves me anyway. How can I not love this person? How, how can I not die to myself for their benefit? How can I not be put out a little bit for their, for their good in light of how much the Father has given for me when I was yet his enemy, and he sent Christ to die for me? And so Paul's prayer for the Philippians is that their love, as it expands vertically, that it would explode out and and it would pour out a lavish, ongoing, limitless love that, that can't help flood out into the lives of others around us. One commentator wrote, the fire in the apostle never says it is enough. There's never enough of our loving God and loving others. So this abounding love means that God is highest in my affections. He's held as my greatest treasure in all of life. That's what that means. I don't have any other gods before him. I knock down all the idols in my life. I I honor his name and I honor his day. And I grow in intimate communion with him because I'm united to him. And and, and I, I look to him as his child. And as I'm doing that, it, it overflows into me. Honoring and respecting those who are older than me or or those who have authority over me. It means that I value and protect life. It means I I respect and, and protect my vows and I stay true to my spouse. It means I honor other people and I respect their rights. I respect their right of having their own property and and not claim it as my own it means I'm honest it means my yes is yes and my no is no it means I don't covet what my neighbor has but I give thanks for their provision and their prosperity it means I'm patient and kind and and not arrogant or boastful It, it means I don't keep record of wrongdoings or or withhold the offer of forgiveness and and reconciliation when a wrong has been done It means I give others the benefit of the doubt and I don't jump to conclusions. It means daily that I will die to myself to live for the advantage of other people. My wife, my children, my church family, my neighbor, and even my enemies. That's what it means to see this love, this vertical love with God to abound more and more and to overflow into a love for others. 
So you see, it is a very tangible thing that Paul is praying here. It's a real thing. It's not some, it's not some indescribable, subjective, mushy, gushy, feelings-based thing. It results in action. It results in real sacrifice. It requires something of me, and it's because God first loved me. Now, that doesn't mean love doesn't include our feelings, our emotions. God gave us those feelings. God gave us those emotions. We shouldn't be afraid of them. We shouldn't say they're, they're meaningless or useless. But we have to be very careful not to define things based on those feelings and emotions. Don't let them control you. Let the truth of what love is control your emotions of love themselves. So that's our first point of prayer, that our love may abound more and more, that my love for the Father, because of who He is and what He has done for me, may overflow into a love for others as I love them, as I love myself. Now the second thing Paul prays for this morning that we need to be praying for in our own lives and in the lives of others, another gospel priority, is that we would pray for knowledge and discernment. We see that again in verse 9 and the first part of verse 10. Now, one of the ways we know that Paul's prayer for love is not something that is detached from a more tangible reality is that he continues his statement that this love is with knowledge and all discernment. So often we hear the foolish notion that love is blind. But the Bible's emphasis says exactly the opposite. Love isn't something that resides in blissful ignorance. No love increases the more we know and the more we understand and are able to discern, not less. This, this has for many people in our culture turned into a sort of strange virtue. There's this strange thing that's often said which equates to knowing less about God means loving him more. You'll hear things like this. They won't say it that way, but they'll say it like this. Love unites doctrine divides. So what are they doing? They're pitting two things against one another, love and doctrine. And it makes it sound as though loving God is what's important, but knowing about God is the great enemy to love. But what other relationship do you have in your life where that could work? Imagine if my wife started to tell me some, some detail about her life when we first met, and I stopped her and I said, nope, Let's not go there. I don't want to know anything else about you. I just want to love you. Otherwise, I might find out something about you that I have to struggle through, so please, let's not talk about the facts of your life. What kind of relationship is that? But that's the very thing that's so often said about one's relationship with God. People sort of boastfully say, ah, I don't study theology. I don't waste my time with doctrine. I just love God. About 13 years ago now, I was in a meeting with a group of local pastors in Savannah. We're having this discussion about evangelical churches on the whole, why many of them were unhealthy and, and dying, particularly in the Bible Belt. And I made the comment that many churches had replaced any kind of theological focus, knowing the Bible, knowing all the implications of the doctrine of the Bible. They've replaced those with a myriad of programs and events to keep people busy and to tell people all over the world that Jesus loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives, but that's about it. So there's no depth of 
knowledge of God and his word. Therefore, we have very shallow relationships with God. Therefore, very weak churches that cannot sustain the weight of real life in a real world. And one of the pastors shot up from his seat and he pointed at me and he says, I have a couple for my church right now in the hospital with their child and they have to disconnect their child from life support and as soon as they do their child's going to die the last thing they need right now is theology they need love I was much more brash back then but I'm very thankful the Lord held me back he was pretty fired up but here's what I wanted to say Brother, if you had spent all of the years prior to this pouring into those people the truth from God's word, then they would be far more prepared to handle what's in front of them right now. They'd have a far more firm foundation to stand upon than the cliche platitudes that really have no meaning to them when life really happens. Brothers and sisters, part of our life together as God's people is to prepare ourselves and one another to suffer and to die. And so what that means is that we have to know something about God. Because when you're on your deathbed, you want to hear a little bit more. You want to know a little bit more than Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, you know what? I don't see what that plan is right now. Because things are really hard. Is there anything more? Blissful ignorance is not part and parcel of love. One writer comments saying, A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as a knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God. But if a man loves God, knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. The more we know of God, the more reason we will have to love God. And and this knowing God is a deeply personal thing for every Christian. It's not just knowing something about him. It's knowing him, communing with him, delighting in him. This isn't some sentimentality. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, bringing the truth of Christ into our hearts through the word of God. And since that's the case, here's what we're really praying for. Here's what we're really asking God when we pray for greater knowledge, that God would give us a greater appetite for his word. The more you are in the word, the more your knowledge of God will increase and the more your love will overflow. So we need to pray that God would get us in the word more and more, that we would read it, that we would listen to it read, that we would listen to sermons, that we would read good books, that we'd think about it, that we would talk about it, that the word of God would be in our hearts and on our lips constantly. And everything we hear and read will give us new reason to love Christ instead of just saying, he loves me, he loves me. Now, the other thing Paul is praying here is for all discernment. When the Old Testament was translated into the Greek, it's called the Septuagint, they use this word here for discernment in Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, 22 different times. 
More literally, we're talking about practical insight. That's really what the Proverbs are, right? Practical insight that informs our conduct. A practical working out of the wisdom that's provided by God. That's what, that's what the Proverbs are intended to do, and that's what Paul's prayer is and what our prayer ought to be, that we might live more faithful Christian lives. That we have the discernment that is necessary to hear something or to see something and to be able to think biblically about it. We need discernment to think about the gospel priorities as we're living our lives day by day. And what that turns into is a sort of spiritual intuition. The ability to make decisions in the moments of our lives that others may not be able to make. But we need discernment to do that. This goes well beyond knowing what the Bible says about something on the surface. It goes into being able to think through all the implications, to think about the context, to think about whether something uh, actually applies to a situation or not, and how. It's not an easy thing. It's a skill that takes a lifetime of walking with God, receiving instruction from the Holy Spirit through God's Word to be able to have a kind of practical insight. All of us need that. I can't tell you how often I I think about something that comes up. Maybe it's in my life. Maybe it's in your life. Maybe it's in the life of the church. And I don't know. I have to... I have to maybe read someone else's thoughts on this. I need to call someone else, an an, an older, more faithful uh, person who has walked with the Lord longer than I have. What insight do you have into this? But you see the progression here, I hope. Paul is praying. Look at the progression of prayer. This is how we ought to pray, that we have this overwhelming love for God that overflows into our love for others, coupled with this, this growing knowledge of God, which gives us that love for God. And all of this produces practical insight for daily living in our lives on our journey with the Lord Jesus Christ through this world. You see, it's so beautiful and and helpful to think about how all of this works together, that we have these gospel priorities for which we ought to pray. And notice he goes on in the first part of verse 10 to explain why this is, why we're praying this, so that you may approve what is excellent. Who says theology is impractical? This is the purpose statement he gives us here for why we're praying for knowledge and discernment. So that we can approve what is excellent. In other words, so that by the insight we have from the Word of God, worked in and through us by the Holy Spirit, we can understand not only what's right and wrong, but also to understand what's bad, what's good, what's better, and what's best. Listen, our lives are filled with choices that we have to make. And one of the most crippling things for a lot of Christians, many of the conversations I've had with a lot of Christians, is all about choices. Some choices are rather inconsequential, as, we, as far as we know. But others are massive and will change the course of our lives. Some decisions we make, some choices we make, are, are little things that we decide each day. And in that moment, it may be a small thing, but when it's added to all the other small decisions we make, they really produce significant results. If I save $1 every day, it's not that big of a deal that day. But if I save $1 every day for 100 days or 1,000 days, it starts to add up to something more significant and useful over time. 
other choices we make might seem completely insignificant and random choices that well, we think they're random, but they, they might change the course of our lives completely. For me, one of those choices I made was going bowling with a friend in 2002. Do you remember going bowling in 2002? I do. If I decided that night to stay at my apartment and watch TV instead of going out with my friends to go bowling, I would have never had the opportunity to talk to the woman that became my wife. It seemed rather insignificant at the time, but it turned out to be one of the most important decisions she ever made to go bowling that night. (laughs) But we also make foolish decisions that have consequences, don't we? Choices that lead to a place where there's a need for repentance. There's a need for reconciliation. But even after that, we have to deal with the consequences. Depending on what the choice was, that could be something that lasts a long time. It could be something that lasts a lifetime. Now, I think more than anything here, we can all pretty well identify the big issues in life that we make choices about on a daily basis that we don't really need to give too much thought or discernment to. We know there are certain things that are wrong and things that are right that don't require hours of study and contemplation and counsel and prayer. But most of life isn't lived having to try and figure out whether or not I should steal something from someone else. Most of life is lived in situations where there's a lot of gray area. And it's in those gray areas where it's really important that we're able to approve what is excellent. Many, many Christians live their lives confused because they cannot discern what is excellent. Why? Because they're depending on other people to do that for them. Because they they want others to tell them how to live their lives. Or they have others in their lives telling them that they they need to do that for them. But if our lives are marked by a love for God that overflows into a love for others and it's all fueled by greater and greater knowledge of God with all discernment, then we as Christians ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit, knowing God's word, will be able to approve what is excellent. We will know God. We will know how to think about God. We know what pleases God and therefore we will know what priorities to have. We will be able to establish the most excellent habits We will think rightly about pleasure and our pursuits and our courses of action and we'll be free. Oh, the joy of freedom that comes along with being able to make decisions without the crippling crippling fear that attends so many when they're always trying to rely on other people or they're trying to rely on the wisdom of the world. It's a beautiful prayer that Paul is praying for his church in Philippians, these people, in Philippi, these people that he has loved so much, his favorite church. It's a beautiful prayer that we can pray for our favorite church and for ourselves as God's people, that we must be praying this thing, that we would have knowledge and all discernment, that we might approve what is excellent. That's what we need. Well, let's think about our last gospel priority this morning. This final priority of prayer in verses 10 and 11 that we would pray for Christ-likeness. Look at what Paul prays here. He says, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This should be our greatest prayers, brothers and sisters, 
that God would prepare us for the final day, that God would be working in us to be more and more like Christ. This is Paul acknowledging that the Christian life is, a, is one of living prepared for the end of life, living as though each day is our last, living ready to stand before God, becoming more and more like Christ, being sanctified day by day by day. And now that's not an end in itself. It's, it's, it's looking toward the ultimate end, which is far greater, which is unhindered communion with our God. That's his prayer here, that we would live our lives with an eye toward unhindered communion with God. What does that look like? Well, he He prays that they would be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. It means that our lives are to be lived in the light. It means that what we do and who we are is is unmixed with the world and all the things of the world. It means that, that we are morally transparent. What you see is what you get. And it means that we're, we're doing what we're doing so, uh, so that we can live without stumbling, that we're not constantly in this pattern of falling into sin, but that we have this uprightness about us, and an uprightness to our walk before the Lord and before other men. And, and we, when we put that prayer together with the full context of what he's doing here, that's us walking through life uprightly, that we can and we will stand before the Lord confidently on the day of judgment. That we're not running and hiding with fear and shame, but we're standing tall before the throne of God. Have you ever thought about that? I think most of us probably assume that on the day of judgment, we're going to try to hide like Adam. But what do the scriptures tell us? That we have every reason to stand confidently before the Lord as his people. But there is a problem with all of this, right? The problem is that what Paul is praying for here, the thing that he's asking for, that we be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness, right now, here and now, we can't do that, can we? On my own, I cannot stand tall before the Lord because I'm not morally transparent. I'm not blameless. I don't have all of the fruit of righteousness in my life. This isn't Paul calling on the Philippians to live better lives, to try harder and to do better and be gooder. (laughs) They can't do that. We can't do that. And the, the problem there is that God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't bend his law to meet our standards. He has his standard, and all men everywhere are judged by that standard, and all men everywhere fail to meet that standard miserably. You and I cannot live up to God's standard. None of us are good enough for God. So what is Paul ultimately praying for here? Not just for the Philippians, but surely for himself and for us. And oh, if we pray like this for ourselves and for others, what is it? It is that we would hold tenaciously on to Christ. That we would continually put all of our hope in Christ and his sufficiency and not in ourselves. That we would remember day by day by day and to live those great words that Paul wrote elsewhere. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see... 
we can stand boldly before the throne of God on the day of judgment, not because of ourselves, not because we have achieved some great level of sanctification, not because of our good deeds, but because of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We owe to God a perfect life, and we couldn't give him that perfect life. We were conceived from the very beginning with the nature of sin. And the penalty for that sin is death. But God, but God, with the great love that he had for us, while we were yet his enemies, sent his son to die. After living a perfect life that we couldn't live, breaking his body and shedding his blood that we owed to be raised from the dead, that we too might live forever and ever. And so the call here for all of us is to look to Christ. If you're in Christ, the call is to look to Christ, the sufficiency of Christ that you might rest upon him and not yourself. If you're not in Christ, the call is to look to Christ by faith, to put your faith and your trust and your hope in him and him alone that you might have everlasting life, never-ending communion with our God. So you see, in this life, we can be more and more like Christ, but we can, we can do so free from fear of condemnation because we are in Christ and our standing before God is not based on our righteousness, but it's on Christ's righteousness. It's the most freeing thing for anyone in this world to understand. We can live as a people pursuing Christ's likeness, pursuing a life that is pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness, not with an eye toward being perfect, but knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work within each one of us to mold us and to shape us and to conform us to look all the more like our Savior. Do you pray for these things? What the apostle has outlined has, has relevance for those of us who care about our families, who care about the body of Christ. Certainly, we must pray for our jobs. We must pray for our finances. We must pray for our health and our children's grades and our friendships and all of these things. But if that's it, we've missed it. We need love to overflow in this limitless geyser up to God and out to others. We need to pray to have our love ride out and expand upon this increasing knowledge of God as it's revealed to us in Jesus Christ because the more we know Him, the more we love Him and we need to grow in our discernment for living so that we may weigh the choices before us and choose what is most excellent. We need to be ready for the day of Christ. We need to be transparent and pure and stand upright before Christ in that day and we can as we stand upon His righteousness alone and as we walk through this life we will see the fruit of Christ's righteousness worked out through us as we become more and more like him, all to the glory and praise of God as part of this endless, joyful commitment to God's glory. Can we pray those things with one another? Can we pray those things for each other, those things for ourselves, those things for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ? May it be so. May we add these things to our prayers that we might be more like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray these very things that Paul has prayed in his letter to the Philippians that we must be praying in our own lives and for one another. We pray, O oh God, 
that our love for you would increase all the more because our knowledge of you is increasing day by day by day. And as our love for you increases, that it overflows into a love for others, for our family, for our children, our, our spouses, our, our neighbors, our friends, even our enemies. And we pray that as that love spills out into the lives of others by our dying to ourselves for their benefit, that we might also grow in discernment. Lord, when it comes to loving other people, you put us in many circumstances that are difficult, leaving us to make very difficult choices, and we need your wisdom because your wisdom is so infinite. Ours is finite. And so we need infinite wisdom to make sound judgments, to discern rightly that we might know what is excellent. And so we ask, O God, that you help us to be a discerning people, that we would use all of the resources, all of the means that you have provided for us, that as we pray for discernment, that we would turn to those things and those people that we might grow. And we pray, O God, that you help us to walk in holiness, in purity, in blamelessness, that the fruit of righteousness would be in our lives, that we would live as open books before the world, before our God. We want to be more like Christ. May we stand fully and completely upon his righteousness alone and not ours. And may we do it all to your glory and for our great and everlasting joy. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.